It's sometimes strange how sermons come about, how seemingly random comments and personal readings can coalesce in your mind. Two things happened to bring this particular sermon about. The first was something I read in a book called Half the Sky, written by two journalists, one from the New York Times and one from the Washington Post. In their book, they make this astounding statement. More girls have been killed in the last 50 years precisely because they were girls than all of the men who were killed in all of the wars of the 20th century combined. In fact, more girls are killed in this routine gendercide in any one decade than all of the people who were slaughtered in all of the genocides of the 20th century. The second was a chance remark by a professor of theology, and he said, you know, there have never been any great women theologians which of course is not true. Friends, I don't have time to say all that I want to say, and believe me, there is a lot to say. So please forgive me if I don't explain everything. Take what I do say and discuss it or discard it, however you feel, over Sunday lunch. But I would like to talk to you this morning about the value of women. And I will locate my argument by making a case that one of the first great New Testament theologians was a woman. I'm not trying to engage here in simple gender politics. What I do want to do is to demonstrate to you, hopefully, that every member of the body of Christ has a valuable contribution to make and that that contribution should never be determined or limited to by gender. In Christ, there is neither male nor female, slave nor free. In this woman's case, we find her right there at the heart of Jesus's story. Her name is Mary. She's the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mary, in a very real sense, is the Bible's quintessential thinking woman. I like her. She is bold. She is smart. She is determined. She is a truth seeker. She is a theologian. I know that part of my task here this morning is to try and free her from the effects of generations of habitual downsizing of women, both in the Bible and in the church. And for example, Mary's three-part story has suffered from long-held, misguided assumptions about women that for generations have not only held women back, but I think have also cost the church dearly. When we first meet Mary, it's in Luke chapter 10, and she is, she is a wannabe rabbinical student. If you like, she's a wannabe student of theology. Mary's deliberate choice to sit at the feet of Jesus identifies her as a woman who wants to know, a woman who wants to be a student of theology. Sadly, in the culture of her day, the study of theology was the domain of men. And you know what's interesting? On this occasion, it's Mary's sister Martha who objects and tries to undermine Mary's desire to learn. Martha, in a sense, tries to position Mary into the culturally assumed proper place for the women of her day. In other words, the domestic sphere. But Jesus' comments defied all expectations. This was not how a rabbi spoke. His comments were contrary to all cultural norms. They were, in a sense, a critique of the status quo. For instead of sending Mary scurrying back to the kitchen, he defends her in the strongest possible terms. There is only one thing worth being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it, and I won't take it away from her. 
When it came to people wanting to know more about God, Jesus always, always refused to let such people be confined by the limitations of their cultural norms and expectations. Mary wanted to learn how to think about God and she refused to let the social norms stand in her way. And in that, she had the full support of Jesus. The next time we meet Mary is in John's Gospel and there we find her doing, if you like, living theology. Living theology in the presence of personal tragedy. Mary's growing theology, in other words, what she believed about Jesus and about God's purposes in Jesus, was now being put to the fiercest test by the death of her brother Lazarus. And her brother's death was made all the more difficult to process because everyone knew it was an outcome that Jesus could have so easily prevented. But to Mary's distress and his apostles' confusing and consternation, Jesus seemingly chose not to help. In the face of a friend's desperate need, God the Son did nothing. How do we unpack that as Christians? How do we, how do we try to explain that when we find ourselves seemingly God's absence in the face of tragedy? That's a question for you to contemplate. But this seeming indifference by Jesus is now followed by an awkward meeting between a weeping, broken-hearted Mary and a Jesus who was shown up too late. Her first words to him are respectful, but they are nonetheless punctuated by bewilderment. Lord, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Standing there in her blinding grief at the death of her beloved brother and her confusion at Jesus' seemingly deliberate failure to help, Mary reaches for her theology. She reaches for what she knows and believes about Jesus to help her process what she cannot as yet explain. Mary had a choice at that moment to let her immediate pain and confusion cause her to abandon God or to let her pain and the questions it brought to drive her towards God. She stands before Jesus with tear-filled eyes and an aching heart and although the word is not spoken it hangs there between them. It's like a huge three-letter chasm. Why? Friends, the moment the word why crosses your lips in the presence of God, you are doing theology. Jesus asks her a question, a question that in a sense touches on the raw nature and cause of her grief and the raw nature of her belief. He is not going to allow her to escape into the realm of theological platitudes or simply reciting creedal orthodoxy. In other words, what Jesus is doing her is asking Mary, does your theology work in your life, Mary? Look at her, this broken-hearted believer, a believer whose confusion is added to her grief by the seemingly incomprehensible absence of Jesus leading up to this tragedy. 
And standing there before him, before any miraculous action has been taken place, Mary, in the dark night of her soul, reaches for a deeper level of trust. She reaches for her theology. Mary was not afraid to do her theology, to ask difficult questions in the presence of God. For her, theology isn't an academic exercise. Friends, as Christians, our theology is all about how we do life. It is the fuel that feeds our faith when our natural world collapses in us and we are left struggling to understand and trust God. That's when our theology truly comes into play. Mary learned through this struggle that no matter how dark things got or how depressed she felt, the safest course of action was to keep pressing in towards God, to always trust him, knowing that if she did, she would find him, knowing that the promise of scripture was, if you seek me, you will find me. A picture of this remarkable one woman continues to build in the third story. That's when the true nature of her faith and the profound perceptive theological insight emerges. And it emerges at a time when, in a sense, time was running out for Jesus. This is when Mary would embody this deeper theology in a radically bold new way. Attend to this story, friends, because it is the third story, and this is when we see Mary as the easer of Jesus. I'll explain what that means in a moment. It happens at a feast, a dinner party to honor Jesus. John prefaces this event by telling us that Jesus' enemies are now moving ahead with their plot to kill him. All of the gospel writers tell us that all of Jesus' male disciples were in denial about this fact. They were in denial about the terrible events that lay ahead, despite the fact that Jesus had on many occasions tried to tell them what was coming. But then in the midst of a party, in the midst of a celebratory atmosphere that was there, this was all happening, remember, to celebrate the risen life of her brother. Mary does something odd, seemingly out of sync, with this jovial atmosphere, she enters the room holding an alabaster jar. That jar contained the secret of her mission, 12 ounces of pure nard. Nard was what the ancients used to pour on a corpse. It's an aroma that in that day was synonymous with death and everyone in the room knew it in a room full of men. Mary approaches Jesus and anoints his body with nard. And against a wave of criticism initiated by Judas Iscariot, whose preoccupation with money blinds him to the profound symbolism of Mary's action, Jesus for the second time not only defends Mary's action, he interprets their meaning. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. There's a common assumption that Mary didn't fully understand the significance of what she was doing. But Matthew in his account tells us that Jesus knew what she was doing and that her, what her actions meant to him. 
and how they linked to the gospel. In Matthew, Jesus says this, she has done a beautiful thing to me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. For I truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, friends, this is an vitally important point in the story. If done in ignorance, Mary's anointing was highly offensive and a terrible act of resignation and unbelief because it would have, in effect, been a symbolic act of surrender of Jesus to his enemies. But Jesus recognizes that her actions expressed an unbending solidarity with his mission and his gospel. And in that brief moment, Jesus' sense of personal isolation, an isolation that came from the lack of perception and understanding by his male apostles, that isolation was broken by Mary. We don't know for certain how much Mary understood about Jesus' mission, but it's clear from her actions and from Jesus' response, she understood enough and knew him well enough to become the first of his disciples, the first of Jesus' disciples to say yes to the cross. Mary was not afraid to embrace the potential sacrifice her theology might ask of her. She somehow knew that the cross was necessary. She knew it was not simply the gateway to the kingdom, but that the cross was the kingdom. She was, in this moment, being an easel warrior for Jesus, standing with him in the battle that lay ahead of him. Now, what is an Ezer? What is an Ezer warrior? The word is used by God, or used by God in Genesis, in the Genesis story of creation, to describe the role of the woman whom he created, Ezer. Now, it's been purely translated as helper, a translation that has limited women to a role defined in terms of marriage, motherhood, and housekeeping. And according to this line of thinking, a woman fulfills her highest calling when she marries, bears children, and manages a home. But the word Ezer appears in the Old Testament 21 times. Only two of those times is it used of the woman in Genesis. Three times it's used of those nations that Israel turned to for military assistance when they were under attack. But 16 times it's used of God. If you look up the references, you will discover that it is used in the context of power and strength in almost every passage. Whenever Ezer is used in reference to God, it speaks of him as his people's defender, deliverer, and protector. It is used to speak of God as one who keeps century watch over his people, as one whose strong arm pushes back those who would do them harm. As Israel's Ezer, God is their helper, their defender, their deliverer, and their protector. Now, based on the Old Testament's consistent usage of the term, it only makes sense to conclude that God created woman to be a strong helper, an easer warrior, who stands not behind her man, but beside him and sometimes in front of him. Let me say in closing, friends, what I said at the beginning. There's a lot to say 
and I haven't got enough time to say it. But what I'm trying to do this morning is not to engage in simple gender politics. What I want to do and hope I have done through Mary's story is to demonstrate that every member of the body of Christ has a valuable contribution to make and that that contribution must never ever be limited by nor determined by their gender. God has given all of us gifts and all of our gifts are to be validated and to be made room for. We need all the help the church has at her disposal if she is to complete her commission. God bless you.